You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. What we've been talking about is how Jesus defines what a human life looks like. The life of Christ lived in the four Gospels, as recorded in the four Gospels, and recorded in the book of Acts through the Spirit. This is how our lives are meant to look if they have never been filled with brokenness and sin. And so the small slice of the life of Christ that we want to look at during these Sundays of Lent is we want to look at Jesus, the enduring life. We want to look at this life that endures. And not just endures in terms of endurance, like running a lot. Endures for the reason why, if you're a parent, you may have said something ridiculous to your children, like, I've had it up to here with you. Mom and dad, this is a physical impossibility. You cannot have it up to here with somebody. You can only have it up to the top of your head. If you try to have it up to here, that's just overflowing. It won't go this high. My mom used to say, I've had it up to here with you. I'm like, Mom, that's not even a thing. You can't possibly have it up to here. You can only have, you're about 5'5". Five, five. That's as high as you can have it up to. That's about it. And we say things like, I can't endure this anymore. We're usually talking about a life event or a person when we say something like that. I can't endure this relationship. I can't endure getting talked about, talked to like this. What we're celebrating today, what we're celebrating in the season of Lent is how Jesus is the life that never says, I've had it up to here. He's the life that can be full of all the things he has to endure with us and still be joyful with us. Jesus will never say this. And so we're celebrating the life that endures not just his own struggle, but his life is the life that endures the struggle of those he came to save. And so this is a call for us. We're going to look at the temptations in the wilderness a little differently than they're normally preached because I want to look at them not in terms of how we're going to be tempted only, but in terms of the fact that when we endure temptation, we are helping other people who don't even know it win a victory in their life. Whenever we're tempted, even in a way that is unique to us, that seems like it has nothing to do with anybody else, it's just our kind of temptation, whatever it is that tempts you, when in the moment when we're facing that temptation, we're putting the world on our back and saying, if I can get through this, if the Holy Spirit can make a way where there is no way through this temptation, somebody in the world is going to have a little less darkness in their life. Because Jesus went into the wilderness to bind the strong man. Amen? To begin the process of overpowering him, not for himself, because Jesus didn't need to for himself, but for us. Jesus went into the wilderness, as we're going to see. We're going to paint a beautiful picture of what exactly Jesus was doing, being driven or brought to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. So let's start as we look at this, because there's a few pieces. It's going to seem like a little bit of a Bible study at the beginning, but it will make some sense. There's just a few pieces. Like when Jesus shows up in the wilderness, some amazing biblical narratives are being tied together. So we'll start with Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Let's just look at where the text's just before the text that we just read. Just prior to this story that we read in Luke, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So what we have before the temptation story is we have Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River and the entire Trinity is present. The son is being baptized, the spirit is descending on him like a dove and the father is speaking over him. So in this moment of baptism, you see the entire community that is God present in the Jordan River. This is one of the reasons why we get baptized during this season. This is one of the reasons why I am overjoyed and so excited that 11 people are going to be getting baptized the night before Easter. Because our baptism pulls us up into this communal life of the Trinity. And so when Jesus goes down into the water and comes up, the Father speaks, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit hovers over him. And you see the entire Godhead present in this moment. And then... After the baptism narrative in Luke, Luke gives one of the only reverse genealogies in the Bible that starts with Jesus and it works its way backwards. And so it starts in Luke 3.23, says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then at the end of the genealogy, it says something very interesting. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the Son of God. And so this genealogy calls Adam the Son of God. This is a very peculiar moment, and Luke is doing something genius. Luke has ended his genealogy by calling Adam the Son of God. And so if any Hebrew if any Israelite, if anyone familiar with the narrative of Israel read that line, they would read, and Adam, the son of God, and genealogies were very important to the Hebrew people. It's how they connected their life with the story of God. And so this beautiful story of God ends with Adam, the son of God, and the only thing they can think is this family, because of Adam, got messed up. Luke ends with the black mark of the story of the people of Israel. He ends with a person who ruined the genealogy from the beginning by eating something he shouldn't eat. So isn't it interesting that the next line in Luke's gospel is Satan tempting Jesus to eat something he shouldn't eat? The minute you see an Adam, the son of God, you think he was ruined because of temptation. And now Luke brings us into the wilderness where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And so what he's doing is he's saying, when you're baptized, you enter this new family, and even if the family that you enter seems messed up, look around you, it's the church. The bride of Christ is a little dented, like we said a couple weeks ago, like craters in the moon, right? The more light that is shined on us, the more dented we look. But it's saying, when you get baptized and you enter this family that seems like at its very root has failed its calling, watch what happens now when the final member of that family does what he does. That's what Luke is saying. Luke is saying, until now, you wouldn't want to be baptized into this family. But watch what Jesus does. And watch how he changes this family. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. And why does Jesus go into the wilderness? He goes into the wilderness for two reasons. Like we just said, he goes into the wilderness to be the last Adam. He goes into the wilderness to be the son of God that gets tempted and doesn't fail. But he also goes into the wilderness for another reason. In Numbers chapter 14, God is saying to Moses, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And the reason why you're going to wander for 40 years is because for 40 days, the spies went out 
and they went into the promised land, and they brought back a bad report. Does anybody remember this story from Numbers? They brought back a bad report, and so Jesus, uh, God says this to Moses in Numbers 14, 34. He says, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. So because Israel failed for 40 days, they get 40 years in the wilderness. So Jesus enters the wilderness for two reasons. He enters the wilderness to be the perfect human, the human that will endure temptation. But he also enters the wilderness to be the Israel that Israel failed to be. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days to do what the spies failed to do and to actually have faith. Jesus, the spies, looked at the enemy and said, the enemy is far too difficult for us. We cannot plunder this enemy. And Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and spies out an enemy far worse than that of what the Israelite spies saw. And Jesus looks at him and says, we got this. Okay. That was exciting to me. I'm glad Jesus got this. Because when it comes to temptation, I don't. So I'm glad Jesus does. And so we need to look at this combination of the garden and the wilderness. To understand what is happening in the wilderness, we need to remember Eden. Adam and Eve were given a personal life in the Garden of Eden, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. But they were also given a vocational life too. Tend the garden from which you came. You were placed in the garden, tend the garden. So Adam and Eve had their personal life where they were together and they were called to be fruitful and multiply, but they also had their employment life, which was to work the garden that they were planted in. And at that moment, there was no difference between the personal self and the working self. How many here will admit you're just a little different at work than you are at home? Okay, let me put myself out there. Right now... When I go home, I don't look this good all the time. I don't have notes. I don't know what to say. So I just say stuff. It's not the same as being here. We're all a little bit different at work than we are at home. For a moment in time, Adam and Eve were their work self and their home self was the same self. And that's what Satan comes to destroy. He comes to destroy the unity and the continuity. We call it integrity. He comes to make yourself multiple selves. He's always trying to sow discord. And he's never just trying to sow discord between you and the person next to you. He's trying to sow discord between you and you. That's why the first demon Jesus encounters in a man is legion. And he says, my name, singular, is legion, for we are many. That's what Satan wants us all to say. My name is Bill, but I'm many. I'm divided within myself. And in the garden narrative, Satan goes after them. Bear that in mind. In the garden narrative, Satan goes after them. And what does he do? He twists God's word. God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the midst of the garden. And Satan's first phrases are, has God really said that you shouldn't eat? So God says something, and all Satan can do, Satan can't speak on his own. He does not have words to say on his own. He can only speak perversions of what's already been said. He does not have an original idea in him. Satan doesn't come up with stuff. He looks at what's already there and tries to pervert it. He's the least original being in the cosmos. God says, you shall not eat. And Satan says, has he really said? 
The voice thunders over Jesus in the Jordan River and says, you are my beloved son. And Satan's next words were, if you're the son of God. Do you see how every time he speaks, even in the book of Job, God speaks to him first and says, consider my servant Job. And Satan says, yeah, he's only worshiping you because. But Satan can only speak because God spoke first, even in the book of Job. God is talking. God is giving of every time God speaks, it's a version. It's the perfect version. And every time Satan speaks, it's a perversion. He perverts the version that God speaks first. In the wilderness, Jesus endures these temptations by using Scripture, by using what God has already said. Jesus, who is God, Jesus does not need to quote Scripture. He is the Scripture. Jesus does not need to say, Satan, turn to page 675, please. He doesn't need to say that, but why does he? He says it because that's the only way we would be able to do it. So Jesus chooses to submit to the weapons that we would have to use. So Jesus says it is written so that we would learn to say it is written because watch, when Eve tries to quote back what God said, the devil says, has God really said you shouldn't eat from this tree? And Eve tries to quote what God said back and she adds something. She says, God said you shall not eat from it nor shall you touch it lest you die. And God never says anything about touching it. See, we are told on TV and in really bad books that we just need to quote scripture at stuff. But look at the, Eve, if this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this is the tree of life, Eve is hanging out here. Adam and Eve, the Bible says that her husband was with her. Adam and Eve together are hanging out here. If you're in the place that God told you not to be in in the first place, you can quote all the scripture you want, you're losing. Quoting scripture means nothing. Scripture has to be an embodied, lived reality. Then you can quote it. That's why Jesus can quote it, because he is the embodiment of scripture. We could throw scripture all the time. We could claim that we're in a good place. We could claim it's a new season. But if we're standing in old season stuff, indulging in it, it doesn't matter how much scripture we quote. Okay. So Adam and Eve, they fail. Spoiler alert. If you didn't do your daily reading, things go really, really bad. The minute they eat that fruit, they fail to be able to be fruitful and multiply well because all of a sudden they're focused on themselves and not each other anymore. Their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. The first response, the very first response to sin is to have a perverted view of yourself. There are so many fun sermons in this. I'll keep moving. And they can no longer work and keep the ground because now it's producing thorns. You see, they, they lose their personal and their employment life. They lose both of them because they fail in temptation. It was their job to endure temptation on behalf of each other and creation, and they failed to do it. So later in the Bible, 1 John will tell us about these temptations that Adam and Eve failed in. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, I know some old school church folk probably have this memorized or tattooed, but you probably don't have a tattoo because you're old school church folk. So you probably got a bumper sticker or a license plate or something like that. <laughs> Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
I could just hear my parents telling me this the minute I turned 13. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life are not from the Father but from this world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at what happens with Eve in Genesis 3.6. When the woman who, mind you, it says her husband was with her at the end of this narrative... Eve gets so much blame for this, but Adam is a silent bystander because silence is being complicit with evil. Oh, my Lord. Is the batteries? Is it the batteries? Is it the heavy snow that fell? What is going on? I thought the women at least would be like, yo, my husband does need to speak up. So when the woman, asterisk, and Adam saw that the tree, look at this, was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he didn't say anything, he just ate, which is what we do. It's 100% realistic. Someone's like, do you really believe in Adam and Eve? When I read that, I definitely think they were real people because I think I've done that every day. Well, I'm not going to say anything, but we need that. (laughs) Evil's power is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in the garden, Eve and Adam fail when they see that the food is good. For the flesh, that it's a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the fruit is able to make them wise. In other words, let me get wise my way. I don't want to be wise by having to learn from God. I want to be wise the fast way. Give me the highway, the shortcut. Let me cut a corner and get wise. That is the pride of life. They, the devil tempts Jesus with things that don't really seem all that tempting, like Dan. I want you to climb to the bell tower on top of Salem Tabernacle and jump off. Like, no. No. Eat stones. No. They don't seem that tempting. Worship me. You're saying no. Why don't they seem that tempting? Because uh, Jacqueline and I were just recently watching one of those CNN documentaries about the decades. They have like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. We were watching the one about the 90s and it's all, you just read, you hear so much about the Bosnian massacres in the 90s and the Rwandan massacres in the 90s. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people mutilated face to face by knives, not even guns. I mean, we're talking about some of the most horrific, heart stopping atrocities ever. And then you just look at all the ones that we all know of Sandy Hook, the Holocaust, 9 11, whatever it is. All of that evil starts with temptations that do not seem like temptations. Turn stone into bread. Be spectacular in front of everybody and jump off this mountain. Get a good show. 
and Jesus, do what you came here to do and get some kingdoms. But just worship me and I'll give them to you. You don't have to go to the cross. It all starts with stuff that we think is so easy to pass off. But we've been talking for almost two years here. I've been talking to you about cultivating and how you plant seeds and it takes a long time for them to grow. And the more you cultivate and the more they grow, the stronger the harvest gets. It's the same thing with evil. Satan is too slick and too smart to tempt with a fully mature version of his evil. He tempts with just little seedlings that look like nothing. For us, it's stuff like, I don't need to say thank you. I deserved what that person gave me. It's okay that I snap back at them. They've done so much worse to me. You know what? I think I'm loving them by snapping back at them because I'm going to teach them to not do that to other people. We've done this stuff. Every time we do that, it's planting a seed of evil that maybe not in our generation, but the more we do that, the more evil can get a harvest that turns into something epic. And so it's our job to go into the wilderness of this world and endure the temptations, not just for us, not just to get a closer walk with God, but to uproot and pull out the weeds of evil from this earth. And they don't start in the natural. They start in the metaphysical realm. They start where every book in the Bible says they are, the powers and principalities in the air. They start in that pull of temptation that you can't measure or see or science can't tell you that it's there, but every bad decision proves that it was there. Like, well, you can't measure evil. Look at my life for 10 minutes, and you can measure evil, I'm sure. Amen. (laughs) So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes into the wilderness. The epistle said the lust of the flesh. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, and Jesus denies bread. Jesus says, my power is in me to give out, not to use for myself. It seems so subtle, and it's not that amazing of a point, but Jesus is saying, I do have the power to turn the stone into bread, but God didn't give me this power to serve myself. He gave me this power to serve the world. I don't use what I'm capable of for me. I use it for you. And so he endures that temptation. Did Adam and Eve have the power to eat? Yes, they did. And they used that power for themselves. Do I have the power to snap back at somebody who is rude to me? Yes. But I should use that power to bless that person and give to them. Give them patience. Give them kindness. Again, that, like, this is work, Bill. This is so, I look better saying this stuff here. It'll be eight minutes in the car and I'll snap at somebody. And I only live four minutes away, so. John said it's the lust of the eyes. Eve looked at the fruit and it was a delight to the eyes. And the devil showed Jesus kingdoms. He showed him the kingdoms of the world. And when Jesus looked at what is rightfully his, the door is wide open to what God promised his son. Satan is showing Jesus what belongs to him. And Jesus looks at it and says, it doesn't look right if I get it this way. Just because the end says I'm supposed to have it, the means do not justify the ends. I don't get it by serving. I don't get it by worshiping you. I get it by serving. The kingdoms of this world are not a transaction that I'm making. I'm here to reveal these kingdoms by serving, not attain them by worshiping the devil. 
immediately Satan is trying to take Jesus off the track to the cross. And that's why at the end it says he waited until an opportune time. He doesn't tempt him again until we hear that phrase, if you're the son of God, one more time. And it's when a thief on the cross who Jesus loves says, if you really are the son of God, come down off that cross, save me and save yourself. One last attempt using somebody that Jesus loves against him. And Jesus endures that too. And finally, the pride of life. Eve fails when she says, I can get wise apart from God by eating this fruit. And Satan does something really peculiar. He takes Jesus up onto a mountain, uh, up onto the temple and says, jump, and the angels will catch you. Again, this doesn't seem all that tempting, but when you look at what's going on here, he tempts Jesus with bread. Jesus is the bread of life, yes? He tempts Jesus with kingdoms. Jesus is the kingdom of God, yes? And he tempts Jesus with the temple, and Jesus is the temple. So Satan is trying to get Jesus to climb up on himself and throw himself off himself so he would lose himself. Do we see this? Jesus denies entitlement. Well, how is this entitlement? Satan is basically saying to Jesus, because of who you are, because of the status of what you have, you can live any way you want, and other people are going to clean up your mess. You jump off this temple, and God will dispatch angels from heaven, and they will sweep you up. And how many of us know people that live however they want, trusting that someone else is going to come and clean up their mess? I'll talk to you whatever I want. I know you'll forgive me. I'll spend the money however I want. I know you'll get it organized again. We know people who throw themselves off the finances, who throw themselves off their temperament, who throw themselves off being rude all the time, knowing that somebody's just going to come and clean up this mess. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do that because that is not why God, God will dispatch the angels when I'm lying in a tomb on the third day. That's when he'll dispatch angels to come and raise me from the dead. But he is not going. If I jump off this temple right now, I'm going to hit the ground because God does not honor entitlement. And so if we start to live like, you know what, I'm just going to make that one more comment because I know, you know, it's, they're, they're, they love me and they're still going to be here tomorrow, so I'm going to say what I want today. That is the beginning of the end. But watch what happens. I know you've all saved your applause to this part right here. The energy has been saved. How many parents do we have in the room? How many siblings do we have in the room? When you love somebody as much as a child and you love somebody as much as a sibling, this will touch you. A theologian from 700 said this, Adam was cast from the garden and thrown into the world that has now become a wilderness and was left there to rot and die. So it's just an interpretation of Genesis. God took Adam out of the Garden of Eden and and this theologian said, and God threw Adam from the garden into the wilderness where he's been wandering around in circles to this day, lost and dying. So according to this hyperbolic, allegorical way of looking at it, Adam is somewhere out in the wilderness, lost and broken. And here's what it says. It says that Jesus is led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. The minute Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism, the Spirit is waiting for him, and the Spirit says, you're baptized, we have a job to do. Now, now why is this interesting? Why does the Spirit instantly bring Jesus into the wilderness? Because here's something that I'm going to say that I don't quite understand. Is that fair? 
I'm going to say it the best I can, and I don't understand how it works. So if you ask me any questions about this, I'm going to say I don't know. I just hope it sounds good. But somehow God is a trinity. And what Dr. Chris Green, who's one of my very best friends and somebody I plagiarize as much as I possibly can when I'm preaching, what he said is this. It is the spirit that allows God to be father, and it is the spirit that allows God to be son. And so when the Spirit is allowing God to be Father, he can love the Son. And when the Spirit is allowing the Son to be Son, he can love the Father. So somehow, because of the perfect fulfillment of the Holy Spirit between Jesus and God, God can be Father and God can be Son. Okay, good. Luke ends his genealogy by saying Adam is the Son of God. And Jesus comes up out of the water. And immediately the Spirit lands on Jesus and Jesus says... As son, Jesus says, my younger brother is out there wandering around in the wilderness since Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. Enough is enough. He's lost. He can't come back. I'm going to get him. And when the spirit lands on Jesus, the father's voice speaks over Jesus. And so the father, the minute Jesus comes up out of the wilderness, is saying, my son Adam is lost in the wilderness. And I'm going to get him. And so somehow in one person, it's a father going to rescue a son and a brother going to rescue a brother. And Jesus is Adam's older brother because Jesus has existed since the foundations and before the foundations of the world. Adam is newer than Jesus. And so Jesus is the older brother from the story of the prodigal son who left the father and left everything and said, I'm not waiting for him to come home. Take my inheritance. I'm going to get him myself. And Jesus goes into the wilderness on a rescue mission. When Adam and Eve are in Eden, Satan comes after them. But when Jesus comes out of the Jordan, he goes after Satan. Satan did not come trying to find Jesus. A lot of theologians think that Satan didn't even know if it was Jesus because he thought he had already defeated the Son of God and was surprised to see him standing there again. Imagine that. Satan's like, are you, if you're the Son of God... And one one theologian said, here's how the devil would know if Jesus was Adam, because the minute he tempted him, he would indulge the temptation. And three times he tries, and three times Jesus says no, and Satan realizes there's a new son. I don't know if I can get him. That's our calling. That's what we're called to. When we leave here, we go into a wilderness, a dry and arid place for the things of God, and we will endure temptation, not because Satan is trying to attack us, but because God is sending us out to the point of attack, saying when you endure what he's doing out there, you go and find your siblings. You go and find my children, and you bring them back. That's what we're doing here. The old family was led by desire, but the new family is led by the Spirit. The old family indulges temptation, but the new family endures for the life of the world. The old family defends itself. Am I my brother's keeper? Is the line of the old family. And the new family says, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And I'm going to go. That's what we're called to. The world and the books and the indulgent self-help, even the Christian self-help, are out there trying to get us to be by ourselves enduring temptation. We can't endure temptation by ourselves because Jesus couldn't endure it without the Spirit. It takes a trinity to endure temptation, not somebody by himself. Only a community can endure temptation. See, Adam doesn't speak, so Eve is by herself. But the Father and the Spirit are both speaking to Jesus, which is why he endures temptation in the first place. 
So we need to be speaking to each other all the time because the thing that's tempting you, it's not just about you. It's about somebody you don't know that's struggling right now. And when you endure temptation in the spirit, that person's life gets a little easier. We're here to be part of that enduring life. Why don't we stand to our feet? Why don't we all close our eyes for a moment? And just picture, just picture, start with the people you know, and just picture people who are not walking with him, who don't even know that they're being tempted. It takes spiritual sensitivity to even know that you're being, if you know you're being tempted, you're already walking in the spirit of God. Because there's a sensitivity that isn't there when we don't have the Holy Spirit. And now think of the people, just the people that you know that are not walking with the Lord, that are deceived on every level imaginable. And now think of the three or four things that you're constantly walking in temptation with. And here's what's happening. God is not tempting you. But God is arming you to endure the temptation that's being thrown at you. Not just for you, but for the people that you're imagining right now. And it seeds. It's not right away. It's not in the twinkling of an eye. It's not at an altar call, and it may not even be this generation. But every time we face temptation, aware that we're on a rescue mission with Jesus... The mission behind enduring temptation might be what's been missing, which is why we keep failing in temptation in the first place, is because we think it's about us and God, but it's about God and the rest of the world. And so to whatever extent we think it's just about us on our own, just not giving in this time, we're going to fail every time because that feeling is not strong enough to endure temptation. But when you realize that the gift of enduring temptation is the release of slavery for your brothers and sisters that are not walking with Christ, we may just have a little bit more pep in enduring the temptation. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pour on this church a missional spirit, that we would leave here as missionaries called to a mission field knowing that it is your spirit that is rising up in us, sending us to the fight because, Father God, you have sons and daughters that you want to redeem and, Jesus, you have brothers and sisters that you want to redeem and so your body is always out like Abraham's mighty men rescuing the lots of the world that have been brought in by other kingdoms. And so I pray that there would be a missional, communal mindset in our life, Holy Spirit that when we're dealing with acute temptation, whatever it is, that we would, that you, Holy Spirit, would put into our mind another person that has nothing to do with that temptation, that people would start sparking up in our memory bank all over the place. And it would be those people that give us the motivation to call on your spirit to help us not indulge but overcome the temptation. Spirit, you're saying that when we're home and when we're by ourselves, we don't realize how much we're affecting the world. The decisions we make in the unseen, Father God, you're the one who said, if you do it in secret, I will reward you. And my fear is that if we fail to do it in secret, the reward will also be evil and brokenness for other people. 
And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that in the quiet places, when no one is looking and no one is around, that we would see the people that you're going out trying to rescue and that we would join the enduring life himself and we would endure trials and temptations with the fruit of the Spirit to reclaim the Garden of Eden, to recultivate, replant, and regrow the Garden of Eden. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this meal that we're about to come to because it's where we derive the strength. We join Jesus in the night of ultimate endurance when he was handed over to the hands of sinful men and was tried and tempted to speak when you weren't giving him words, to defend himself when he was being falsely accused, to come down off the cross when it would have caused everyone to know who he was. It was on that night that he gave us bread and he gave us wine and he said, drink this and eat this as often as you can and remember tonight. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall on this meal and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and that you would sanctify us also that we may come to this table, that we would walk to this table as Adam and we would leave as the body of Christ. That as we come to this table, we'll be the younger brother running home and that you'll meet us as the father at this table and we'll leave here as older brothers, leaving to go rescue the younger brothers. And so we thank you for what you're doing. And we pray that you would empower us this week to endure temptation on behalf of the life of the world. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.